Pray with me if you would so we can sanctify this time. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the gift of music and that it is a way for us to express our thanksgiving to you and our praise to you. And we're thankful that you've given it to us as a gift and we can enjoy so many different styles. And it all is designed to give praise to you. And that's certainly what we would want to be doing with music. Thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for the time that you have laid out before us even to study your word. May it too be an act of worship where Christ is exalted. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I imagine that if you were to ask most people what they would say to a pastor who was planning a sermon series that was going to last several years, would be sure to offend some people and lead to their departure, elevate personal stress in his life, not to mention the stress on his eyes, having planned to read some 17,000 pages in preparation along the way, I imagine most people would say, don't do it. Didn't you go to seminary? Didn't you learn anything in seminary? Are you nuts? Do we need to have you committed to one of those rooms that have rubber walls where you wear helmets? Don't do it. But I would say, if the benefits are going to outweigh the costs if it means several years going deep into the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, focusing on Him, if it means by proclaiming Christ's Word in season and out out of season, He'll be honored. If it means you're getting ready to do a series in Romans, by all means, do it! And so I stand before you, perhaps based upon your opinion, as someone who should be locked up in a rubber room where I can wear a helmet, or as someone who is a pastor who takes Christ's word seriously, who loves the gospel, who loves the cross, and is seeking to grow. Uh, my, I'm seeking to grow myself as a pastor and as a Christian, and I want so badly for us as a church to grow and for you to grow. You'll have to decide on which evaluation you're going to make, but I can't wait for us to start Romans. And so we're going to do that this morning. But I'll have to say that I think we're going to do an introduction to an introduction. And it might even be an introduction to an introduction, which is an introduction to an introduction. All of that to say, um, I think I have 18 points, and uh, it's not going to happen this morning. So, this morning we will look at seven astounding things about the book of Romans that demand our attention and our praise and our worship. And then next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll look at seven more. Maybe we'll be done. Maybe you can pray for me that I'll be able to clean up the list between now and then. Or the next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the remaining, by then I'll add more perhaps, the remaining seven. So introduction to an introduction to an introduction because we're going to be in Romans for a while, so we might as well see the the forest so that we don't only look at the trees. And that would be my intention. So that's the plan. In the days ahead, by the grace of God, we will look at the book of Romans, which will be a great, great thing for us. Number one, the first extraordinary thing about the book of Romans is that Romans is powerful. Romans is powerful. Our study in the book of Romans is powerful. And by the way, we will get into Romans a little bit today. but we might not get there for a little while, so relax and don't get nervous. And if it just wasn't enough of a sermon for you, you can listen to one online. There are lots of them. Um, but we will get to the text eventually. Don't get nervous. Don't leave the church. We're not compromising our commitment to expository preaching or anything like that. 
Romans, when you just look at it from a cursory level, in fact, if you just looked at the word power in the book of Romans, here's what you would find. Romans has Jesus Christ declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, Romans 1.4. Romans has the gospel as the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, Romans 1.16. Romans has the eternal power of God revealed to all in Romans 1.20. Romans has God sovereignly demonstrating His power even over unbelievers in Romans 9, verse 17. Romans has followers of Jesus abounding in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit in 15.13. Romans has Paul the Apostle of Jesus Christ proclaiming the gospel of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, Romans 15.19. And that was just from like a novice look at the word power in the book of Romans. But then if you step back and you look at the power in individual people's lives throughout history and you look at the impact upon local churches throughout history, you look at the impact upon different nations throughout history, you look at the impact upon the world, the impact of the book of Romans upon the world throughout history, you see power from a different angle. Let me give you just a a few historical tidbits regarding the power of the book of Romans, the one that we have here holding in our hands. A recovery of the truth in Romans, which is a recovery of the gospel, led to what I consider to be the most monumental, essential event since the ascension of Jesus in church history. And that would be the Reformation. The Protestant Reformation, I believe, was the most monumental, the most impactful event in all of church history since the ascension of Jesus. Why? Because the Protestant Reformation was a recovery of the biblical gospel and the truth about Jesus Christ on the cross. And and it recovered what had always been true, and that is that God saves people by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It wasn't that the Reformation invented it, but it certainly recaptured, it recovered that fundamental foundational truth. And, and, And how did it start? Well, Well, the spark that lit the flame of the Reformation, you guessed it, It's the book of Romans, taken at face value. John Wesley was converted, and he was converted as a result of listening to Martin Luther's introduction to his commentary on the book of Romans. Oh, and by the way, when he was converted, he was already a pastor and a missionary. Unconverted. Augustine's conversion is tied to the hearing of Romans. Frederick Godet, a Swiss theologian and a good one at that, said this, and I love this quote so much that I wrote it, on the first page in my Bible in Romans, though it's hardly legible by now, every moment of revival in the history of the Christian church has been connected to the teaching set forth in Romans. Wow. And it is probably that every great spiritual renovation in the church will always be linked, both in cause and effect, to a deeper knowledge of this book. And I have to say, God, please... Give us such a revival, such a revived interest in the things of the cross and the truth about Jesus Christ and His gospel. Do that while we're studying Romans. John Calvin wrote, When anyone gains a knowledge of this epistle, he has an entrance open to him to all the most hidden treasures of Scripture. The English poet, not theologian, the English poet Samuel Coleridge referred to Romans as, I love this quote, the profoundest, piece of writing in existence. 
F.F. Bruce, noted New Testament scholar, said, there is no telling what may happen when people begin to study the letter to the Romans. William Tyndale, who translated the Bible into English, believed that every Christian should memorize the book of Romans. John Christostrom used to have someone read Romans to him out loud twice a week, and when he was done hearing it for years, he said this, Romans is unquestionably the fullest, deepest compendium of all sacred foundation truths. You just sample history and you say, wow, what an impact that the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and an in-depth look at it makes upon the world and upon individual lives. But it's not just in ancient history. I once heard the story of a man who, who was listening to a pastor do exposition of Romans and he's preaching through Romans and he's hearing Romans and after the service he saw someone close to him that he did not know and he went over and they made small talk and they do often what Christians do and the man said to him after talking a bit, he said, now, so how long have you been a Christian? And the man said, well, based upon what I've just heard in Romans, about 10 minutes. It has this profound ability because it is, in fact, the gospel explained to convert people. I trust that people will be converted by the grace of God through our study of the book of Romans. Big enough group for me to not have to be a prophet to say, I I would imagine that some of you will be converted while we're studying the book of Romans. I say, God, please make it so. It's a powerful, powerful thing to look at the gospel. And Romans looks at the gospel in a deep and powerful way. And it calls it the power of God for salvation. That's the gospel. How good is that? A second compelling reason, an extraordinary reason for us, to study Romans or a thing about Romans that's important. Number two, Romans is lasting. Romans is lasting. Romans is enduring. And I want to put that on the negative so you see what I'm getting at. In other words, what we're about ready to do isn't a fad. This isn't a trend. And that's really important for us. It's really important for us because the Bible says things, and we won't take the time to go there, but it it acknowledges that there's a real possibility, according to Ephesians 4, that, that Christians will be tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine. They're not grounded. And, and we live in an era where, that I would call, right now in church history, we're, we're living in what, what I would call the fad-driven church era. And it's all about the latest fad, the greatest, whatever's new, whatever Zondervan is pumping out, then we need to get in line. And if we're going to be relevant, then we're going to be a part of it. Romans isn't that. Let me illustrate it this way. Let's just say for a moment, let's just say that Omaha Bible Church decides to do a major marketing campaign throughout the city of Omaha. And we want to let everyone know. We're going to spend thousands of dollars to let everyone know that we're going to do something new and cutting edge and everyone wants to be a part of it. And what we're going to do is we're going to embark upon a sermon series. And the sermon series is going to be based upon a book. And the book is The Prayer of Jabez. 
what would the evangelical church at large conclude? What would what would they conclude about Omaha Bible Church? Besides thinking they got a new pastor, <laughs> what would they conclude? They would conclude that we are so out of date; it's not even funny. They would conclude that we are that Omaha Bible Church is so passe. I mean, after all, that book came out in what, the year 2000, and it really didn't hit its stride until about 2003. I mean, this is 2008. I mean, they are so behind the times. I mean, not only is, is Jabez out of date, and there are warehouses filled with Jabez junk that they couldn't sell to gullible Christians. We're, we're past purpose-driven, too. I mean, the same thing would happen if we said, we're going to do purpose-driven life, man. <sighs> Omaha Bible Church. Don't they know that that's yesterday's news? Because we as evangelicals, unfortunately, are just lining up for the next trend. And we want to be all a part of the next trend. My question is, if what was big in 2003 and later is now irrelevant to the point where people would make fun of us, and they would, why did we do it to begin with? This doesn't make any sense. Because we can open our Bibles to the book of Romans and we can see what will always be relevant. We don't have to be fools chasing the wind. I mean, the only thing we're on the edge of is we're on the edge of cutting, uh, cutting edge. We're on the edge of, of the 16th century Romans. No, not, that's not even true. We're on, we're on the edge of first century history. That's not even true because Romans reaches back to the patriarchs. You know what we're going to do? We're going to do, we're reaching back to patriarchal history. That's not even true because it goes back in Romans to Adam and Eve. But that doesn't make it irrelevant. As a matter of fact, it makes it always relevant because we're dealing with human beings and who they are and who they've always been. And we're dealing with God and who He is and who He's always been and who He always will be. One way to be surely relevant it's for us to say, what does God say about human beings? What has He always said about human beings? What does He say about Himself? How is it that we can be right with God? We are guaranteed relevance and we won't have a warehouse full of junk and we don't have to look dumb. I love that about the book of Romans. It was relevant last night in my living room as I was involved in a Bible study in the book of Romans. It was relevant for me as a college student and a brand new Christian however many years ago. It was relevant for me first hour today. It's relevant for me right now, and it will be relevant for me in 10 years, 20 years, relevant for you. How about this? The truth in the book of Romans will be relevant for you for the rest of your life, even when you breathe your last breath and you step into eternity. Because we're talking about God and what He calls His gospel. I love Psalm 119, verse 89. It says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. It's great. Think how silly it would be if in 20 years I'm in the hospital dying of cancer. I hope the Lord gives me more years than that. hope He gives me at least that many. <laughs> but no matter what, it's a matter of time. Think how silly it would be if it's in 20 years, let's say, or 10, I don't know, and I'm there. Think how silly it would be for you to come there to comfort me and you pull out the prayer of Jabez and start reading it to me. 
how silly is that? Please, when I am there and you come and see me, please read the book of Romans to me. Because it's going to matter then. And it's going to matter when they take the oxygen off and I breathe my last breath. This is the best investment we could possibly make. We don't have to be fools chasing the wind when we look to God's Word and we look to the Gospel in Romans. Number three, Romans is simple. I'll just do this one rather simply and quickly, and I promise we're going to get to the text. It's so simple. How can I say Romans is simple? Well, because it's about the Gospel. And we always say, and it's true, a child can understand the Gospel, right? What I like to do when I go speak somewhere, I go to a school or I go somewhere where I haven't been before, more often than not, if I look back and, and, saw what, and looked at whatever I've done in the past, I probably have taught Romans more than anything else. I've done it at least twice here in the last 10 years. I do the jet tour of Romans. I say it's Romans from 30,000 square feet. You get the big picture and it starts with chapters 1, 2, and 3a, sin, 3b, 4, and 5, salvation, 6 and 7, sanctification, uh, 8, security, 9, 10, and 11, sovereignty, 12 through 15, service, and chapter 16, salutations or stuff. I can do it off the top of my head. I don't need any notes. I love to do that. And I would imagine that more often than not, when I do that sermon, in 30 minutes or an hour, whatever they give me, most people leave thinking to themselves, that Romans, that's an easy book. That's really easy to understand. And that's exactly what I want. I want them to see the big picture and say, this is a very easy book. A child could understand that. First Bible study I ever went to as a Christian through the navigators at UNL. Romans. But some of you are going, I've been reading Romans lately, pal. And uh, that's the next point. Number four, Romans is complex. (laughs) You know, it's good for us to study Romans and take time to do it because we're talking about the deep end of the pool. So if you want deep, you want to go deep? I, I, I give you Romans because we are talking about the deep end of the pool. We're talking about the tough stuff. I'm more intimidated by the book of Romans than any other book. I have more technical commentaries on my shelf uh, than, uh, for Romans than any other book of the Bible. I taught through the book of Romans when I was a college pastor 11 or so years ago. Who was there? Anybody of you there? I thought somebody would be in this room. All right. Some of your kids. <laughs> And it about did me in then. And I've waited 11 years to do it. And I'm kind of thinking I should wait 11 more years. Nobody say amen. It's, it's, it's a big deal. It's a big deal because we're talking about the cross and we're talking about the meaning of the cross and going deep into the meaning of the cross. I know of more than one pastor who has not only resigned from their local church while preaching in Romans, they've quit ministry altogether in Romans because it is just a tough, tough thing to do. So if you want challenging, I give you Romans. Number five, another compelling reason, another important, astonishing thing about the book of Romans, Romans is clear about the problem. Romans is clear about the problem. And we will get to a text in this particular section here's what I love let's use the medical analogy I'm not a doctor I don't play one on TV Um, some of you are 
But what Romans does, like a faithful doctor, is Romans gives the honest and truthful diagnosis that everyone is a sinner. But it not only does that, it gives the honest and truthful diagnosis, it gives the honest and truthful prognosis. There is absolutely nothing you can do to cure the disease. Romans doesn't have the best bedside manner, as we will see. But it is dead on honest. There will be no spiritual malpractice suits filed against the book of Romans. You're a sinner. Everyone is. Without exception, except for Jesus Christ. And there is nothing you can do about your sin problem. Oh, to make matters worse, it's going to lead in your eternal condemnation because we're talking about a God who says, if you sin, you'll die. It's bad news. And we'll get to it, but that then helps us understand that while we can do nothing to save ourselves, it's all about Christ and His cross doing everything, which is what makes us worship Him, what makes us love Him so. Romans does not say you're a good person who has untapped potential. Romans does not say it's just a matter of you living your best life now. That's called Pelagianism, and that's a heresy. Romans is not suggesting that you have the spiritual sniffles. You're a sinner, but God helps those who help themselves. Where is that verse anyway? That's called semi-Pelagianism. Or Arminianism. Look what Romans says in Romans 3. It is really, really bad news. But it's true. It's honest. It leaves us knowing where we are. Romans chapter 3. This is your worst life now, is what this is. In Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And some of you, if I wouldn't have said Romans, you'd be thinking, there he goes reading the Old Testament back when God was grumpy. Well, I've got news for you. That is from the Old Testament. And it's quoted in the New Testament because we're talking about the same God who doesn't change. He's eternally righteous and He says the wages of sin is death. And as He peers, if you will, that's the imagery used in Romans 14, He looks and He looks and He looks and He looks and He looks for someone on the earth who is good. Sure, He sees relative goodness. We're not as bad as we could be in our actions. But as He looks for someone who's good, zero. It's bad news. It's very bad news. Devastating news. Horrible news. Then look at chapter 5. In chapter 5 of Romans, not quoting the Old Testament, we're going to see why anyone in their right mind would want to talk about the bad news. And by the way, Christians actually like to talk about the bad news. 
Show me someone who is completely hacked off and offended having heard about sin, and I'll show you someone. I'm not a betting man, but I'd be willing to bet they're not a Christian. Because when you see how bad the problem is, if you already understand the great solution in Christ in His cross, you not only don't mind hearing about how bad the problem is, you want the truth about how bad the problem is, and you see it for what it is, and it's so bad that you see Christ is the only answer, and He's so good and great and glorious because you, in fact, were not a good person. And He died for you. Look what it says in Romans 5. This is so awesome. This is why the good news is so good, because the bad news is so bad. Verse 6, for while we were still helpless, that fits Romans 3, at the right time, Christ died for those who are living their best life now. No, Christ died for the ungodly. That's you. Smile. (laughs) He died for the ungodly. That's the gospel. Verse 7, for one will hardly die for a righteous man. That doesn't really make a lot of sense. No, that doesn't make any sense. Though perhaps, I mean, this doesn't even make sense, but perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even die. He's already established we're not righteous. Verse 8. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How good is that? Romans is just telling you the truth. You know what? When did Jesus die for you? When He saw how good of a person you are. And He saw you reaching out. And boy, you were really trying. And so, because you're so good and beautiful and lovely, I'm going to have my son come and die in your place. No. The reason the cross is so amazing and we worship Jesus Christ is because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So tell me about it. Tell me about sin. Tell me about sin. Tell me about sin. And I'll read books on sin. I'll read the Bible and I'll say, yes, tell me the truth once again. Because as I see and hear the truth once again, it just causes my mind to fly to the cross and fly to the greatness of Christ. It's really clear. It's really clear. I remember teaching a class one time, subbing for one of my professors, and I taught a class, uh, the opening class on homardiology. Some of you have never heard the word, let alone said it before. There were a hundred people that came to the class on homardiology, the study of sin. Oh, welcome to the class on homardiology. For the next quarter, we're going to tell you how bad you are. That's what the class was. And you know, we're going to go deep. We're going to look at Greek texts and Hebrew texts. And you know, this is all about understanding what a wretched, depraved sinner you are. In fact, you're the enemy of God. Is there tuition for the class? Sure, I'll pay $35 for the class. What's the textbook? Why? Why don't people do that? People do that because they do, in fact, want to know what's true about them so that they can see, again, what's true about Christ and so that it makes sense. And what does it do? A class on homardiology fuels praise and it fuels worship and Romans is going to give us a class on homardiology. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 5. And I imagine that's why Godet and others would say the key to any revival, not revivalism, Finney style, the key to any true revival, the book of Romans. For one, because it tells people what they've been saved from. 
This is going to be a great, great thing for us. Number six, the next astounding reality about the book of Romans that motivates me to want to study it and preach it would be Romans is, how about this, the answer to the question. It's the answer to the question. What is the question? Job says it well in Job chapter 9 verse 2, how can a man be right before God? That's the question. The question of questions is, in light of who God is, in Romans 1, 2, and 3, will tell us over and over and over again, He's righteous, He's righteous, He's righteous, He's righteous, He's just, He's just, He's just. Those are the same words coming from the same Greek words. In light of who God is, the bazillion dollar question is, well then, who in the world can stand before Him in a right status? Because the answer is, in light of our sin... Also in Romans 1, 2, and 3, nobody. Can't do it. That's the point that's belabored over and over again in Romans 1, 2, and 3. It it, it just doesn't make any sense until you get to Romans 3. Look at this. This is so deluxe. This This is worth the price of admission, folks. Look at verse 21 of Romans 3. Having just nailed nail after nail in the coffin and and having elevated the righteousness of God. Romans 3.21 says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, which is a theme he's been developing, the inflexible righteousness of God, the justice of God, has been manifested. And by the way, at that point in time, if you don't know what's coming, you're thinking, I don't like that. I don't want that. This is This is what caused Martin Luther to say, I hate the righteousness of God. I'm infuriated with God. I don't love God. I hate God. Because He's righteous. And I'm a sinner. But keep reading. The righteousness of God has been manifested. Oh no, hang on. Oh, it gets good. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ For all those who believe, for there's no distinction, the righteousness of God is for us? This is great! Because up until that point in time, the righteousness of God is not for us, it's against us. But through what Christ has done for us, in earning righteousness for us, and believing in Him, you get His righteousness, which is God's righteousness. So God's righteousness is for us. That's Romans 3. We say, yeah! I love God. I don't hate God. Because He's not just righteous. He provides me with His righteousness so I can meet Him and I cannot be a dead man before Him. Well, let's keep going. Verse 23 of Romans 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's just talking about the unity there. Verse 24, Being justified, declared perfect, as a gift... Yeah, because no one does good. No, not one, remember? As a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, as a satisfaction in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. Verse 26, for the, de- for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that He would be... Here's just the deluxe part... Just and the justifier of the one who has faith 
in Jesus. The just, in verse 26, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That might not weigh heavy on you, and you might not be impressed with that if you haven't been reading Romans 1, 2, and 3. But let me just provide a synopsis of what's happened. 1, 2, and 3. God is righteous. God is righteous. God is righteous. God is just. God is just. God is just. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. Wages of sin is death. Conclusion? You hate God. You hate His righteousness because it means lights out for you justifiably. And that statement right there, that God is the just, see, He didn't compromise His justice because if He compromised His justice, the angels would stop worshiping Him and He wouldn't be God. He maintains His justice. He's not a corrupt, Godfather-style judge who's been bought by the mafia or bought by religion. He's just and he maintains his justice. Otherwise, no one would worship him. He wouldn't be worthy of it. He's the just, so good, and the justifier. Without compromising his own character, he justifies sinners like you and like me. How could he do that? Cross. He has his son come, live a perfect life on our behalf, Then He pours out His just executing wrath on His Son as His Son is dying in our place because the wages of sin is death. And if you believe in Him, you depend upon Him, you trust in Him, those are all synonyms, He credits you with the righteousness of His Son and now He can accept you even though you're a sinner. That's the Gospel. That's Romans 3. That is what fuels our praise. That is the answer to the question. Our problem is so many times, we're not even asking the question. I mean, we we can't even come to the table because we're busy reading people's books that tell us we're good people. And Romans makes no sense at all. The gospel, quite frankly, makes no sense at all. It's the gospel of human uh, human achievement. As you can tell, I'm a little bit excited about this. This is critical for us. So good. Christ is so good. God is so good. Let's move on to a final thing about the book of Romans that is wonderful, and that is that Romans is God-centered. Number seven, Romans is God-centered. We will look at chapter one in just a moment. If you want to go ahead and go there. Okay, just take it in for a second. I just said that the book of Romans is God-centered. Let me add to that. Romans, before it is about anything else, is about God. And you might be thinking, wait a minute, I thought Romans was about the gospel. I thought Romans was, was about how I, a sinner, can be reconciled to God. I, I, I thought it was, it was all about me and we're going to go deep in the gospel. That means it's, it's, it's really going to be great for me and it's going to be helpful to me. I thought Romans was about me. Well, it's not either or. You do benefit, and that makes it great. It's wonderful that you can be justified, declared righteous before God and not be opposed by Him. But you've got to know that above and beyond all of those things, 
that benefit us, Romans is about God. Romans is God-centered. Even your salvation that Romans so wonderfully unpacks ultimately ends up being to draw attention to how great and gracious God is. So please, as you read Romans, think about your great benefits and your great blessings and praise God for those, but please don't miss, don't read it like a pagan and thinking it's all about you. Don't miss the great emphasis that is everywhere in the book of Romans, that ultimately it is about God. I like what Leon Morris said in his commentary when he said, one point that is often overlooked and should be stressed is that Romans is fundamentally a book about God. The thought of God dominates this letter. The word occurs 153 times in Romans, an average of once every 46 words. In Romans, the one great theme is God. Romans 1, let's just take a sample. Romans 1 to 7, let's just see from the very beginning, it is first and foremost about God. It is a, if you want to be fancy, it is the most theocentric document I know of. God-centered. It's about Him. Romans 1, 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle set apart for the gospel, which he, wait a minute, set apart for the gospel, whose gospel is it? The gospel of God. It's God's gospel. It comes from Him. It's empowered by Him. He's the author of it. The good news of God. We miss that way too often. Which He, God, promised beforehand through His, God's prophets in the Holy Scriptures, which are His too, right? Concerning His Son, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness Jesus Christ our Lord and I could insert that he's the God man but I won't through whom we have received grace it's God's grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for their salvation well that's true but what does it say there for his for God's namesake that's ultimate priority here. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Verse 7, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. The saints are the beloved of God. Grace, that's God's grace to you. And peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. It just boils over. Just everywhere. You just can't miss the God-centeredness of Romans. And therefore, how about this? We can't miss the God-centered aroma that comes even from the gospel as we think about it. Please, as we study, listen for the God-centeredness of all of this. As you contemplate your salvation and you realize that no one does good, no, not one, that includes you, uh, God, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, that makes you think about God and how gracious He is and how kind He is. It just has this great aroma of God-centeredness to it. And that leads us to... Worship. We're going to talk specifically about how this leads us to worship next time. But when you get to chapter 12, having heard all this great, great, great stuff that God has done for us, we didn't deserve it. He says, I urge you, in light of what you've been hearing, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. That's code for everything I've talked about so far because the only reason you're not a dead person suffering in hell right now is because of the mercies of God. So I urge you, therefore, by the mercies of God, Romans 1 to 11, 
to present your bodies, that is all of you, as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of what? Worship. In light of how great all of this is, in light of how great the gospel is and the God-centeredness of it all, what do we do? We just say, God, I live for you. I'll die for you. Everything is about you. You are indeed worthy of our praise and our worship. Romans is a manual on worship, among other things. It's no wonder we would say, let's have a true, genuine revival. Where we see God for who He is, we see ourselves for who we are, and it changes everything. That's what I'm praying for, and that's what I'm hoping for. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank You for this morning and just this what I've called an introduction to an introduction. And and we would ask with sobriety, I ask certainly that you would indeed do a mighty work in our lives through the gospel, even as we look at it in depth through Romans. And we would ask that you would do a mighty work ultimately for your namesake, for the glory of Christ. Impress us with your greatness. Help us to think the right way. Help us to have our minds conformed. Help us to take all thoughts captive to the glory of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.